it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Andrew. Have a quick note for you before we start this episode. For whatever reason, we had a ton of technical difficulties with this one. I mean, even before we got started in the middle, pretty much throughout the recording, which you'll be able to hear. And then even at the very end, there was a technical difficulty. So we just want to say up front that the sound quality isn't up to par as our usual episodes You'll just have to bear with us on this one. But, you know, the content is good. And so we wanted to keep it in there because we know it will be very helpful. Enjoy. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon silence crippling confusion and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers your path to financial freedom starts now all right well welcome to investing for beginners uh today we have brayden with us all right, we're going to be chatting a little bit with uh, Braden about some questions he has. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the co-hosts. All right, we also have Andrew Sather with us, the other co-host. So welcome to the podcast. We're super excited to talk to Braden today. So, all right, he's got some awesome questions. And really glad to be here. Thank you, Braden. And we'll take a stab at answering them for him. So I guess uh, without any further ado, Braden, why don't you go ahead and ask your first question? Yeah, sure. So... I just wanted you guys to talk a little about the fees associated with dollar cost averaging. Me, someone like me with a mostly indexed portfolio, I'd like to do potentially more than just a annual reallocation and contribution. Yet, I want to minimize my trade fees, even though I am using a discount, discount brokerage service. These fees do add up with a smaller portfolio. Can you guys speak to that? Yeah, definitely. A few questions first. So what broker are you using, or if you're not comfortable asking that, like what kind of commission fees are they charging you? Yeah, so the the fees are low. It's with 
my bank as a Canadian, I use a bank called CIBC. That okay. You may not be familiar with in the States, but they trade for $7 a trade. Okay, $7 a trade. And then you are dollar cost averaging already, or that's something you're thinking of doing? Well, right now I'm just doing a annual portfolio rebalance as well as contributing to max out my my tax-free accounts okay because i'm just trying to get like a a sense of how much money we're talking about because depending on if you do want a dollar cost average that's gonna come out to however much you put in a month and depending on what that amount is is going to determine how big of a percentage those fees are going to eat up so i mean if it's I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll say it in this way. My e-letter portfolio that I follow, you know, I have all the, my readers follow it, and it's it's something that I prescribe to. It's my a big chunk of my life savings. That puts in $150 a month. So what we're trying to do is just show that the average person can do a small amount and make it something great. At right. 150 a month, the average uh, I'm I'm getting a 4.95 commission that I have to pay for trade. So I'm losing out the gate, like maybe two or 3%. Right. Um, that's not ideal because that, that actually is, you know, it's a year of dividend payments right there. Right. But for something that's such a long-term outlook, a lot of the positions I've closed recently have been gains much higher than 10 or 20%. So mm-hmm. that little 3% bump doesn't hurt me that badly. And because I am younger, I have a much longer time horizon, so in that way, I kind of see the length of the investment canceling out the fee of the investment. Right. Okay, understood. Yes, yeah, so my portfolio, basically, I'm allowed to max out my tax-free accounts of $5,500 a year in Canada under the new legislation. So, I mean, if I did $5,500 12 months with six or seven positions – Right there, you're looking at a fairly significant trading fees each month. So I'm just wondering, is there advantages to dollar cost averaging in terms of my returns that could potentially outweigh those trade fees, essentially? In the sense that you're not trying to time the market because a downside to putting it all in at once Let's say you're putting it in at the beginning of the year as opposed to spreading it out over the next 12 months. If you do that, then you're basically betting on the fact that the next, that maybe this month will be the cheapest it will be. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so if the market goes lower in the next three, six, let, let's say the next six months, the market just continues to go down. If you would have invested it all right now, then your portfolio would be in a lot worse of a position than. If you step it in and then as it's going lower, you're able to buy more and more and more. So like the whole idea of it is it naturally gives you a buy low, sell high, because if the market goes up, you're buying less of it. And then if the market goes lower, you're buying more of it. It's the same dollar amount. That's why I call it dollar cost averaging. But you're getting more or less shares depending on how the market moves. Understood. Another, you know, factor of this too is – as you as you use the dollar cost averaging, one of the, the advantages to this type of you know uh, strategy is it's a long term strategy. This is not something you're going to do in and out, in and out, in and out. It's meant to 
you know, work to your advantage over a long period of time. And the way that I look at it is I kind of do the same dollar amount that Andrew is looking at, but instead of every month, I do it every quarter. And because and I do that to help try to reduce some of the, the fees, you know, the percentage of the fees for me, and that seems to work well. Mm-hmm. Plus, the other thing, too, for me is that I am, you know, I'm looking at a small group of stocks, so I don't have a lot of positions that I'm looking at, maybe 10 that I'll be buying. So I may buy, be buying some percentages of it depending on what the price is at that time, and that's kind of what I look at. So that's kind of how I go about it. I, I did some math real quick about what you were saying, 5500 over the year divided by 12. That's like 450 a month. And then if you try to spread out and, let's say, put in six positions in a month, that's a, a very significant um, transaction fee cost that I would most likely not do. It would more it would be more like putting one position in per month at that amount. Yeah, because you're looking at over, right. around around ten percent, you know. Yeah. Of your portfolio, and that's that's a lot of money to overcome. Absolutely, especially with a with a low smaller portfolio. Uh, being a university student, that that kind of brings me into my next question, actually. With these new DIY brokerage accounts that are coming out with free ETF trading, I might have to switch over and lose some convenience with my banking service. But I see potentially these free ETF trading websites being completely advantageous to be able to take over that dollar cost averaging strategy without these fees hindering me. And then I'm just wondering potentially if you see these bigger businesses coming out with that free ETF trading to try to retain some of their customers. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thought. In the world of podcasting and kind of like the newer media of investing, investing blogs and a lot of the advice that's out on the internet, a lot of us are aware of ETFs. And, and to us, it's like you look at it the same way as you look at an individual stock or a mutual fund. A lot of us know that an ETF has a lot of great benefits over a mutual fund because of its low fees compared to the active management fees of a mutual fund. That said, I saw some research the other day that said if you look at, I don't know if it was 401ks or some sort of retirement account or hedge fund account. I can't remember what the specifics were, but it talked about like a broad range of what the whole United States average investor is investing in. And a lot of their assets are actually less than it was like 5% in ETFs or something like that. So I think the wow. trend can only go up from here. I think to say that more bigger companies will move towards free ETF trading as that begins to pick up more steam, I think that's definitely something that could happen. Um, if it's something you're doing, and again, we're looking at the same question that we looked at before, a small portfolio amount and if you're investing a lot in ETFs, yeah, why not take that free free trading fee and, and you know really run with it? Because at a low yeah. at a low portfolio value that can really compound just in itself right there because you are avoiding those those trading fees. And another another thing to keep in mind with the, the the free part of that is the bank that I work for is talking about doing this particular feature. But one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to limit the types of ETFs you can invest in. So you won't have the whole world of ETFs to pick and choose from. They may narrow that group down to maybe 10 of those. And so by doing that, though, the one disadvantage is, is you could get stuck in, you know, if you pick two or three that are doing poorly, 
then that's going to hurt you in the long run if you don't have bigger options to choose from. So that's one of the things we need to take into effect. And, you know, I know that uh, by listening to some of the other podcasts that Andrew and I have both listened to, there are some big players that are moving towards this and are, they are recognizing that there is, there's money to be made for startups of them by having people's money invested with the bank to do this, and it's in their best interest to do this. So they are moving towards that, and they're moving away from the mutual funds, definitely. That's really cool to hear, especially I, I could see potentially with these banks, them isolating the available ETFs to ones that particularly have higher management expense ratios in their favor, because I know some of these big banks do have their own ETFs, so I could potentially see that being a tactical business move for them. Yes. Yeah, that's something, you know, people think they're being smart and educating themselves by going with the ETF. But if you don't look at the prospectus, you know, that's something that can get washed through that you don't even realize. That, that's an important point. And another another factor to remember with ETFs is their main goal is to match an index, is to match the S&P or whatever index it is that they're they're trying to mimic. And so they're not trying to beat the market. They're trying to match the market. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. As you become more comfortable with trying picking individual stocks and using, you know, all the great tools that Andrew uh, has to provide for you, you're going to you're going to find opportunities to invest in individual companies, which will make you more money. Because that's what we're going to do. Hey, you! What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Understood. Really great. Enough about some boring index funds. <laughs> spice my it next, up, Brandon. My next, yeah, let's spice it up. My next question has to do with a couple of ratios that I know uh, that I hear all the time on your blog, uh, Andrew, and and I'll be definitely checking out your your blog, um, Dave. So price to earnings, of course, the holy grail of, of valuations, and then price to book, price to sales. And then debt to equity is actually one that you introduced me to, Andrew. And it really making a lot of sense in terms of some sort of value trap that I know you uh, you talk about. By the way, I have not read the value trap indicator. I just want to go ahead and say that. And I'm expecting my uh, complimentary copy in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see how the rest of this goes. Okay, sounds good. So these these metrics that I'm talking about they can be quite confusing to people, especially people my age. I'm I'm very young, still still in college. All this information now seems to be publicly available with with these kind of services with DIY brokerage accounts without even really needing to calculate them yourself. What are some standard metrics you, you use? And and if you have this in your book, that'd be that'd be great. I know that Ben Graham used the 15 or under PE as kind of like a like a standard go-to. Can you talk about some other ones for for book sales and, and debt to equity? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, these metrics when you're just hearing about them, it's really really confusing, and I, I try to break it down and make it as simple as possible. I'm not. I can get into the educational you know academic kind of side and i can be that way if i want but i find that the best way to learn is when someone just lays it out real simple real easy so let's talk about the ones you talked about price to earnings so there's three right price price to earnings price to book price to sales blah 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 blah. all that means is it's the price 
So how expensive is a stock compared to the first one is earnings. So you mentioned the Ben Graham likes it under 15. I, I like it under 25. And I'm going to say that what's more important with these three metrics is not getting it like, oh, well, you know, I found a PE of 23, so that's better than the PE of 25. It's just more of not buying a PE of 100 or 200 or 50, right? We're, we're just trying to get inside a little range. And then if we line up, line our ducks up in a row and be like, okay, this looks okay, this looks okay, this looks okay. There's no ugly ducklings here that are really going to ruin the rest of the batch. So that's what we're going to look for. PE under 25, I've probably bought stocks under 30. I mean, I'm sure I've looked at them. Price to book, very similar. Ben Graham likes to recommend under 1.5. The book is just talking about the book value. To make that the most simplest I can for people, book value is the net worth of a company. Okay, so what's the net worth of an individual? Well, uh, when you're in college, it's the value of the beer in your fridge minus <laughs> the liabilities of your student loans, and that's your net worth. Uh, I'm a couple years removed from that, and my net worth isn't much higher than that. Maybe I have a couple more beers in my fridge. But that's that's what book value is for a company. So the price to book is just how expensive it is. We're talking about how expensive the, the stock is compared to that book value. So if you're getting a low book value, you're getting a, you're getting more of a company's net worth uh, as you invest. So I, I will, when I start to look at a group of stocks, I tend to look under three. Yeah, sometimes I'll break that, maybe go a little bit on over three, but under three for sure. The lower under three, you can get better. Anything above five, no, stay away. Same thing with the price to sales. They're very similar ratios. The sales is just talking about revenue a company brings in you know it makes sense a company needs revenue to make earnings so it can have a company like uh i don't know was it enron or whoever had like was really great at manipulating these numbers i don't know what their price of sales were but there are certain companies out there who might have really low sales but they're able to do this financial accounting shenanigans to really get their earnings to look good Price to sales is one way to mitigate that. It's the same concept as price to book, just you know, below three, ideally below two, definitely not above five. And the last thing, debt to equity, it's how much debt a company has. And if you keep that ratio under one, that's a good sign. It can, it can go a little bit over, but anything over two, I'm generally staying away from. You can look at it as like a company owes money, if the debt to equity is under one, that basically means they have enough of a cushion in their assets that will, let's say all their debt has to be paid off today, they have enough cushion in their assets to where that cushion can pay for that debt. And they'd still have their, their regular assets in there. I'm just spitballing. I believe that, Dave, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but on any you know, debt to equity under one tends to mean that they can cover their their liabilities at that point. Absolutely. You're right on the money with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all the numbers that Andrew was talking about, the thing to remember with the numbers are the things that, you know, that I use these for are guidelines to help me start deciding what companies I want to invest in. I will never, ever buy a company solely on just those four numbers. I use those as a guideline to start. Manish Prabhai is one of my favorite guys. He's awesome. 
teacher. He's great to listen to. He's an amazing investor. His, his record over the last 20 years is stupid good. He has a checklist. He's a big checklist guy. And the, the numbers that we're talking about right now are part of my checklist. And every person is going to have their own individual checklist that they'll create. Right? And these are just guidelines that I use to help me identify companies that I want to dig into more and learn more about to see if it's something I want to invest in. Mm-hmm. And I'm always looking at companies as kind of a long-term friendship. It's something I'm going to be, you know, or together with this company for a long time. And I want to know as much about them as I possibly can. And these numbers are a guideline to help me figure out if it's something I do want to invest in. And it's also a guideline to tell me every six months, every year, if the company's not doing as well as they should, then I maybe want to think about getting out of it as well. So that's that's what I look for as. Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm I guess I got to create my own uh, personal checklist. Priced a book on myself, I would not take me as investment. Although there is a ton of beer in the fridge, <laughs> it's a ton of beer in the fridge. I I still wouldn't uh, invest in myself. Just I, I like the honesty. I mean, that makes me want to invest. Yeah. <laughs> we just have a big party tomorrow, so. Yep, it's gonna. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's be honest here. Your sex life is important. It helps us feel more confident and boosts our happiness. But sometimes we struggle to perform. Our life gets in the way. This is where hymns can help. With their convenient and discreet online platform, you can get help for your erectile dysfunction from the comfort and privacy of your own home. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward conversations, just a simple, direct path to treatment that works around your life, not interrupts it. Invest in your health today. Hims is changing men's health care by providing access to affordable sexual health treatments from the comfort of your couch. Hims provides access to doctor-trusted ED treatment options such as chewable hard mints, brand-name treatments like Viagra, or generic alternatives for up to 95% cheaper. The process is simple and 100% online, no uncomfortable doctor visits. Answer a series of questions on their site, and a medical provider will determine the right treatment option. If prescribed, your medication ships to you free, no insurance is needed. If ED is getting you down, it's time you join the hundreds of thousands of trusted HIMS subscribers and get treated. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash investing. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash investing for your personalized ED treatment options. Hymns.com slash investing. Hard mints are chewable compounded products which are not approved by or verified for safety and effectiveness by the FDA. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I mean, that's not going to help my, my cause either, too. <laughs> it's not going to help next quarter's results. So I saw a post that Andrew had made, and I don't know if it was on your blog or if it was on your your email list. By the way, get on Andrew Sather's email list, everyone listening. It's great and keeps you keeps your mind thinking about things that you need to be thinking about. So there was a post that, about this guy, theoretically. I don't know if it was a real guy, but no, it's theoretically, real. it's a real guy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So theoretically, he bought in at the market at the worst possible times in history. Like I'm, I can't think of more worst times than, than the ones you had mentioned, including the financial crisis, black Monday is what they call it. I was not nearly alive yet, but I hear, I've heard all about it. Can you just explain this, this time value of money concept um, for my friends? Cause I am young and I just want them to understand you can make mistakes like this guy and still come out on top long-term. Yeah, well, first off, good luck getting friends and family to get in on this. And yeah, this was an email I, I sent out to my daily email list. Love me, and they hate me for that email list, so uh, take it for what it is. The story goes, is uh, it was actually on CNBC. Portfolio manager, his name is Ben Carlson, knew about an investor and you know we talked about dollar cost averaging at the beginning of this which is a way that if he would have used dollar cost averaging my god he would have made many more millions than he but right. he he piled money in like you said it was like let's see so 70 1973 1987 black monday was also 1987 and then he put in in 2007 and those were like the three or four significant investments he made and he put in like 
50,000 in each. And by the end of it, he made $1.16 million. What that shows you is how important it is to just get in the market and just hold for the long term. Because the thing that a lot of people do is they'll buy and then they'll get so into it, they'll get so invested, they'll maybe try to find a shortcut or a secret. And it's really just being patient and putting money in and letting the money work for you. Uh, I, I see it all the time where I, I see this a lot with value investors and I, I was writing about this this morning, but I think people try to have this controlling mentality on their money and it it gets to a point where you're just doing too much. And really when you're putting money in a business, all you're doing is claiming your little sliver of that business. It's part ownership of a business. After that, you wash your hands clean and you just say, you know what? The business is going to do what the business is going to do. That's what you're doing when you put money in the stock market. You put money in, the business takes your money, and then what they do is they put that to work. They hire employees, they build plants, they expand into new territories, build marketing teams, and then those earnings grow over time. And so the kind of work that can be done on that money is way more grand than anything we could personally do with our time or our money. So it's really, you see this as like a perfect example and it's not something that's limited to just this one guy who had this specific special scenario. This is the power of letting businesses put your money to work and then having it grow over time. I, I believe they, the Ben Carlson guy said he that the investor made about 9% annually. That's very close to the market average. So... I know a lot of people aren't math people out there, but just think about that. He turned a hundred, almost two hundred thousand dollars over his life. That was his life savings, and just by basically making a little bit over the market average, he became a millionaire. What else do you have to say? I mean, proof is in the pudding. Like, put money in the market, let it go to work, and don't fret about. Oh man, I really need to get the timing right, or I need to get the stocks right. Just Put it in the market, be diversified, stay long term, and you can really, really have some nice results. Yeah, set it, set it, and forget it. You know, Albert Einstein talked about, you know, kind of a smart guy. He talked about compounding interest being the eighth wonder of the world. And you know, to me, when somebody like that says something like that, that's something I'm going to take notice of. And everything that Andrew was talking about is absolutely right on the money. There's you know, tons and tons of stories there of people that have, you know, invested 20000 50000 $1,000 and forgot about it. And then 30 years later, they remember or a family member discovers it and it's, you know, half a million dollars or more. You know, just because of one investment. And, you know, when people run into trouble with investing is when they, like Andrew was saying, is they get so invested in it and they start playing with it and trying to control it and you can't control it. You're buying a small silver of the company, let them do their job. That's the other you know, our job is to figure out if it's a good company to buy. It's their job to run it. And if they don't do a good job, then we sell it and we move on. Understood. Yeah, I uh, I love how you said buy it and forget about it. That person that forgot about it. I think the majority of investors, that's probably the best thing that can happen to them is to forget about it. Yeah, I think he, he definitely tried to forget about it because every time he'd put money in it just – it would be like right before crash. And what do you know, after many, many years, he, he not only recovered, but made more money after that. That's really cool how you can see that happen. You can have absolutely the worst luck and still make a million dollars in the stock market. 
Really cool. My next question is recommendations for people with smaller portfolios and their dividends can never compound to buy another share. So for instance, if I have a $10,000 portfolio and I have a position of about 10% of my portfolio in Apple stock, let's use Apple stock for this instance. So although they might pay a healthy quarterly dividend, I cannot really reap the benefits of a dividend reinvestment plan compounding if I don't have enough capital in that one specific stock to actually make another purchase and, and let that stock to continue to compound. So I, although I'm receiving that dividend in cash, I'm not really seeing the the Albert Einstein eighth wonder of the world. Do you want to take that one? Dave? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. I, I fell back because I keep, I keep. No, it's all. quite all right. Um, well, sorry. There, there are several ways to look at this. I guess, first of all, you know, the, the compounding, you know, the effects of compounding takes, I guess, time. And so even though you're buying, you know, you're not having a lot of money invested in there, you're still, you know, you got two things going on. One is if you're dollar cost averaging, you're continually adding to that position, which continues to add to the dividend that you're going to receive, which increases the amount of shares that you're going to be buying. The other thing, too, is you're looking for consistency in the dividend. Dividend over time is going to make a huge, huge difference. Um, I read something actually on Andrew's blog not too long ago about dividend reinvestment, and I don't remember the exact numbers, and Andrew's probably, you know, will be able to jump on this much more, uh, well, better than I can. But basically, what you're looking at is you got time on your side. You know, like you said, you're young. you got a long way to go. And... As you continue to add to those positions, you're going to be continually adding to those dividends you're going to be receiving, and this will continue to add to your compounding. And, you know, one of the companies that I bought, you know, not too long ago, their dividend is, it's, you know, it's not much. It's 13 cents per share per quarter. The stock is trading at around $24 a share right now. So I have about 100 shares of that company. Well, it's not going to be enough to buy a whole share of the company, but it can continue to add to the position every quarter, every year. And so, you know, it continues to add to the return that I get. You know, that's the other thing you need to think about, too. With the dividend reinvestment, that's an additional 2 to 4% that you're getting on that money that you invested every single year. And that's going to continue to compound. And the, the graph, you know, if you look at the graph, you know, it starts out low, but as it gets, you know, towards the 30-year mark, it's going to be a huge, huge, you know, number that you're looking at. So you have to look at it as over a long period of time as opposed to a short period of time. I'm going to turn it over to Andrew and let him speak a little more intelligently about it than I just did. <laughs> no, you did good. From my understanding, you still earn a partial dividend for partial shares. You do. So let's say you earn, well, you have what, a, a share and a half, and you would get a dividend plus half. So, so the compounding will continue. So in that case, it doesn't matter how much the stock is or how much of it, even if you just buy one share, it's the same as buying a hundred. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I just personally in my account, I, uh, I don't see any half shares being purchased or anything like that. It's just strictly integers in terms of, in terms of repurchasing. Did you sign up for the the drip for your broker? Yeah. Yeah, my, my whole account's automatically set to drip. And it just shows whole shares. Just whole shares being purchased. Yeah. That's weird because I mean mine mine all does uh the the half share 
or the, really? the decimal shares. Yeah, yeah. my my as well. It does you know, if I get thirteen cents and it only buys me a you know very small percentage of the share, it does the same thing. And in the next quarter, I get you know a percentage off of that share. Wow, that is very good to know. I will definitely be investigating that because I've actually considered almost undiversifying my portfolio to have bigger holdings in certain in certain positions to to start getting that drip advantage. So I'm gonna have to to talk about my my brokerage about that because that would be that would really be a game changer. Yeah, I mean, I I talked a little bit last week. I know we haven't released the podcast yet, but I did talk. A little bit last week how i actually like to concentrate certain of my positions to be a little bit higher than others so i don't think that's a terrible thing but to do it just because you want drip yeah i think uh getting that straightened out with your broker would be a good thing definitely move on to my last question here so i just want to talk about international exposure so as someone with a boring schmoring index portfolio for the most part I just wanted to to get some expert opinion on what is truly the importance of geographical exposure, and and to, to my understanding, it's to to hedge some risk in terms of if if there's political uncertainty in certain areas geographically, as well as just what other factors. So a political would be my first guess in terms of risk in in one certain area or one certain market. Is there other an advantage to having more global exposure in terms of returns. Yeah, I would. Uh, yes, there is advantage to it. I'm going to be honest with you. I have not delved much into this, uh, working with international companies for a couple of reasons. One, the political part that you talk about. Yes, there are definitely yes. considerations you have to take. That, for example, what's going on in Europe with Russia? What's going on? With it? There's a lot of uncertainty in what's going on in Europe right now with companies in India with Russia as well as in the mainland of Europe. So that's thing definitely need to take into consideration. The other thing you need to take into consideration is the risk of the shenanigans with the financials. Here in the United States, we have the SEC that burns, you know, how the stock market works, how the companies have to report. Overseas, they don't have, have that same stipulation. So, you know, all the mumbo-jumbo that's going on with Volkswagen, for example, and some people, you know, accusations with fiat. There's a lot of Deutsche Bank. You know, there's several big, big companies that we have that there's a lot of shenanigans that have been going on recently. And I don't have enough knowledge about some of those things to speak intelligently about it. So that makes me concerned. One of the things that, you know, I'm a value investor and Warren Buffett's one of my big guys, obviously. And he talks a lot about his sort of confidence. And frankly, for me, some of this with international exposure is outside my circle of competence at this point. So I have not really branched out much in intelligent about it. Um, so that's my thought. So, I mean, you're on the other side of the border. Don't throw a grenade over to me. I'm just going to say <laughs> I'm very... I got a wicked arm. I don't know. <laughs> I do too. I mean, I can throw it back just the same. I'm very pro-USA for a couple reasons. In the sense that, you know, you're Canadian, you, you might find it that you would be pro-Canadian. I don't know what the tax implications are there. Uh, here... If I were to buy a stock, let's say in Canada, most likely Canada would tax me on those capital gains. 
And then when I brought it into the U.S., my fabulous government would tax me to, I'm sure, pay for orphanages and all those <laughs> great things the government does for us. So there's a double taxation that happens when you buy international stocks. That's one factor of why I don't dip into international stocks. Another reason is that although people can argue about the economy here in the U.S., and I guess you can you can talk about the broader sense of North America, we see a lot of competition in some of the third worlds, which are really developing, taking a lot of manufacturing and having their own sort of manufacturing boom. But the investment money is still in the States. Hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars of market capitalization is still in the States. So if you are there now, it's a great spot to be in because understand that capital in the market is what's enabling these businesses to grow. So corporations turn to the market to get funding to grow their businesses. When the, when the money is already here, it just tends to perpetuate itself and lead to more growth. Now, that being said, of course, there will be some advantages and disadvantages to finding different international plays, I guess you would say, opportunities, values. There's some great international ETFs if you, if you feel something towards a trend towards, let's say, Russia or Japan, where the prices are really depressed and there's a lot of stocks there trading at a discount. Maybe you want to not necessarily own a single of them, but you want to own like a group. I'm sure there are different advantages and you can definitely go for that. To, to address what you said about political risk, it is very valid. And obviously, as politics goes, so do the markets. You see huge moves in the market from various political events, and it happens over and over again. What I'll say is that in many of the great investing books that I've read and that I consider classics, things that I base my foundation on, politics are always there, but the market, yes, it moves in the short term, but over the long term, it is not affected by politics. So businesses will continue to be businesses. Governments may shut down. They may go bankrupt, whatever that may be, but business will continue to happen because that is the core essence of human interaction is business exchanging money from one person to another. And so as long as you believe in that in this idea that business will always happen, you don't have to worry about the end of the government, the end of America, the end of Canada, the end of whatever economic standard you want to think of. You can be confident that business will always happen. And so you can invest in a group of businesses do it for the long term and maybe you might find yourself a millionaire who knows <laughs> maybe yeah that's that's really cool that you i like that you touched on potentially grabbing an international etf if you do want that exposure because then i know that's what i do because then i can get international exposure but still trade on my my actual market instead of an, another currency that i have no idea what might happen to that currency because I have no idea how that even works at all. So I, I don't want to put, put my money into something I don't understand, as you had discussed, Dave. That's, that's a good point. I mean, unless you have, you know, a line to the president and you want to <laughs> feed me some of that info, feel free. I mean, you know, off, off, off the air, we can get some sort of insider trading going or something like that. I can drop a line to Trump, too. So <laughs> see what he's doing. Tweet him. Apparently, he reacts to that. <laughs> I, as a Canadian, I just want to want to ask, what is? Do you guys know a lot of Trump supporters where you're from, or is it just 
I feel like everyone might be just a closet Trump supporter. <laughs> I think that's what's going on. I think that's what's truly going on. I'll I'll say this: it's not something you uh, typically want to parade about and st- stand up and say you're a Trump supporter. The media here is definitely very anti-Trump. Yeah, it, I, I, in Wisconsin, it's kind of a mixed bag. I I will say that I'm a Republican and that I did vote for Trump, but I'm going to be honest with you. All I could think about when I was going into the voting booth was in our great country of all the you know hundreds of millions of people we have, these are the two best choices we get to choose from. Really? This is what you're going to <laughs> So, you know, it was kind of, for me, it was more of a lesser of two evils. But, uh, you know, time will tell. Well, so for everybody out there, Dave's address is 2345 Cheesehead Road, Wisconsin. Uh, But I I like that Dave just says it how it is because, you know what? People are allowed to have their own political opinion. And and it's so wrong that people are just shaming someone for their political opinion. I I agree. Write a Facebook post about it. Yeah, I agree. It's, 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 you know, that's the foundation of our country is, you know, free speech and being able to say what you want to say without being ridiculed for it doesn't mean I have to agree with it or they have to agree with what I'm saying. But, you know, everybody has the right to to talk about it. And that's the only, that's the only way you're ever going to get anything done is by listening to each other and figuring out a way way to work together. Dave, I'm going to share this podcast onto my Facebook page, oh God. and you're going to get some haters. Yeah, I'm sure I will. You're going to get some Canadians coming at you with hockey pucks. That's all right. <laughs> I'll forward you some of the haters I get for my daily list, too. That way you can have just a bunch of haters all in no, one. That's quite all right. I, I used to live in Minnesota, and I hated the Vikings, so I'm quite, I got tough skin. Andrew, if you have haters on your thing what do you just do you you respond to them or do you just say can you find the unsubscribe button like it's so easy i've gotten newsletters that i absolutely despise and i just unsubscribe yeah i mean most most people do every once in a while so so yesterday i got one the guy's like can you stop massaging me on my phone (laughs) i assume you mean message so yeah and i just click the unsubscribe form (laughs) i had another guy who uh had something interesting to say and I blast them out of my email list. So if you want to hear about that, you, you got to be subscribed. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes juicy stuff comes out there too. That is awesome. Well, I am out of questions. appreciate you guys setting this up and taking some time to talk about. I know that some of these questions, I am somewhat knowledgeable on it, but not completely. And, and really there's a lot of people my age that, just really haven't really dived into it. And I just, I I want them to start understanding at this age how powerful the present value of money really is. I mean, you work so hard, you work in your desk job, you work whatever, 40 hours a week, and then what do you do it for? You do it for the paycheck. So why not let it work for you? Amen. 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 Thank you, Braden. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today. Uh, yeah, you asked some awesome, awesome questions. I, I, again, I, I wish I could clone you and take you out into the world. You know, but <laughs> amazing questions, man. So don't sell yourself short. I know you made a couple comments about being young. Don't sell you short. You got a good head on your shoulders, and you're you're on the right path, man. So. I know we both really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, and we hope uh, we hope it's some benefit to you. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com.
Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.